is going to come from Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Exodus 34. And the context here is important. Uh, We're not familiar with the context here in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 comes after Exodus 32. Yes, I know that's groundbreaking. Yes. Uh, I'm going to write a paper just on that thesis. Uh, In Exodus 32, we we recall one of the most uh, important and maybe most tragic episodes in all of Scripture, maybe second to none to um, the fall of Adam and Eve. A great sin where um, God's people have been redeemed out of Egypt. They, by their own um, wisdom, create and craft this idol of gold, a golden calf. And here in Exodus 32 and then in in chapter 33, Moses is is before the Lord imploring, um, interceding, mediating for the people, praying that God would be patient, long-suffering, merciful, and gracious to these nation of sinners. And so that's the context here. So Exodus 34, uh, verses 1 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain." So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, Let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. As we're going to see, one of the things that God reveals to us about himself in this passage is not only his, his mercy, not only his compassion, not only that he is the, the forgiving one, but that he is also the perfectly just one. And we, read, we know of this also in, in our catechism and what we confess. So if you have your catechism, it's in the back of your uh, hymnal um, on page 873, Lord's Day, uh, Lord's Day 4. So this isn't a sermon on Lord's Day 4, um, but it is uh, helpful for us to kind of see uh, where this fits uh, within um, what we confess about who God is and what he has done. 
So Lord's Day 4, we'll read uh, question answers 9, 10, uh, and 11. I'll read the question, let's respond um, in unison uh, with the answer. So beginning with question 9. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity. Having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question 11 then, but, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Sober words, true words, uh, but sober words, and we'll uh, hopefully be able to see and reflect on those together as we um, consider uh, what God has to say to us this, morning, this evening from Exodus 34. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time um, this evening in God's word. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we come before you again tonight, Teach us, shape us, mold us, form us to how you would have us to be in light of the truths of your word. Father, may we repent of all the things that we have believed about you that are contrary to how you have revealed yourself here in your word. May we submit all of our thoughts, our actions, and our deeds according to the eternal and abiding truths that are taught in your word inspired by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, as we consider your word tonight, that above all things, your name would be glorified. And in so doing, that your people would be strengthened, your people would be comforted, and your people would find a blessing in the promises and the grace that are revealed in, your, in the Holy Scriptures. We ask this all, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So how would you describe God? Someone asked you for a definition to describe God. Maybe one of the ways we might describe God or people in our culture might try to describe God is that he's kind of like us, but maybe just bigger and better. We will use ways that we can relate to but just kind of say God is kind of a bigger and better version of ourselves. But God, friends, is not like us. Certainly he's a person, as we are persons, but he is not uh, like us. He is not constrained by sin. He's not constrained by time. Uh, And so maybe a better and a more helpful 
definition or understanding of who God is was given to us by a man named Anselm. I gave this to you in your handout. Uh, Maybe the best description of God's being, of his nature, comes from Anselm. He says, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. He is the greatest, the most supreme, the most perfect being that our minds could possibly imagine. And if that is true, that's who God is. The one of whom none greater that our minds could conceive. If that's true, then he is in fact the most perfect being. What must be true of God then if, if, that, is, if that is who he is? Well, this one of whom none greater can be conceived, he actually, God, in this passage in Exodus 34, actually gives us a definition of his own character, of his own nature. He answers that question for us. Here, Moses, he again appears uh, before Moses here at the top of Mount Sinai, in the cloud and the fire and the smoke and his holiness and his righteousness. Notice what God says to Moses in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Uh, Pastor Philip Ryken says this is one of uh, the most important verses in the entire Bible. This definition that God gives of himself, of who he is. This is God's definition of his own character, of his own eternal nature. And and these words actually become kind of a confessional statement for Old Testament Israel. The the words here of Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, are repeated numerous times in the Old Testament. We sang one of them uh, this evening from Psalm 145. But it's other places throughout... uh, throughout, uh, Uh, the historical books, especially in the Psalms, in the prophets. And so these words, the way God defines himself here, kind of become the foundation for what Israel is going to confess about who God is. This was the hope of Israel. Remember how how Moses describes them uh, in verse 9. Go among us even though we are stiff-necked. What does that mean, stiff-necked? The imagery comes from the agricultural world where uh, a a beast of burden is is stubbornly disobedient and unwilling to move or to to respond to the direction of um, the owner or the farmer trying to get them to move. Boys and girls, it's kind of like if you might have a, a new dog or a puppy who just is completely out of control and disobedient. That's kind of what it means. But instead of just being ignorant, like maybe a puppy is, stiff-necked is stubbornly disobedient. That's what Moses is saying Israel is. Stubbornly sinful. Even though that's who they are, Moses says, God is willing to be gracious. Merciful, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. 
And so stubborn sinners, and we are very much like Israel, aren't we? Stubborn, stiff-necked in our own sin. Stiff-necked and stubborn sinners, we need forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness, only that He can give. And the question is, is God going to forgive? Is He willing? Is He able? Will He pardon stubborn, stubborn, obstinate sinners? Yes. Why? Because of who He is. Because of His eternal nature. He is the one whom none greater can be conceived, and He is the one who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That is who He is. And not only does God declare to Moses His eternal nature, but He offers Moses the promise and answers Moses' request from verse 9. Just remember what Moses, what Moses prays there. I pray, go among us, dwell among us. Even though we're stiff-necked, pardon our iniquity. Notice that. Forgive our sins. And note, what's the last thing Moses prays for? Take us as your inheritance. Moses is praying that God would take these sinful people back and make them his own. That they would belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death. They were going to be his very own people. Because of who he is, God can take sinners and make them his own. And we see here that as God reveals to us his nature, we see that there's these three eternal perfections of who God is that kind of flow out from him being the greatest the one whom none greater can be conceived. And so God is the perfectly compassionate one. He is the perfectly forgiving one. And finally, he is the perfectly just one. So firstly then, God is the perfectly compassionate one. Here beginning in Exodus 34, God commands Moses to make two more, a second version of the tablets. Tablets maybe 2.0 or one point, I don't know, whatever version of the tablets you might want to say it is. Um, why did he need to make another version of the, another copy of the tablets? Because he broke the other ones, right? As when he came down and saw the sin of the golden calf, in his righteous anger, Moses threw down the first copy of the Ten Commandments. And so God asked Moses to bring up a, a second copy that he's going to write the Ten Commandments on again for the people. But the scene that that unfolds as Moses goes up early in the morning, first thing in the morning, he heads up the mountain. Notice how, we, how God is described in coming down on the mountain in verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. Now we might just pass over that quickly. This isn't just kind of a puffy white uh, fluffy rain cloud. The cloud throughout Exodus is, is, is a picture of God's holiness and his righteousness and his perfect nature. This is God coming in his holiness whenever we hear about God's cloud. It's really a storm cloud, if you will. Usually it's mentioned with cloud and fire. So God descends in the cloud 
and he stood with Moses there. And as Moses stands there in the presence of the Lord in his holiness and righteousness, God says to him, he says, I proclaimed and I will proclaim my name. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands. This is the first thing that we see about God telling us who he is. Right? There's several what we call adjectives, right? Adjectives are words that describe nouns, right? You didn't know you'd get a grammar lesson here at uh, evening worship. Uh, Adjectives are words that describe nouns. God gives us four adjectives to describe himself um, in in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7. We could summarize all of those adjectives under one. Compassion. He is compassionate. He is the compassionate one. Notice here, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. Merciful here really means that God is able to relate to the sin and the plight of his people. God understands our situations. He is tender. Boys and girls, this is like maybe when if you fall and you scrape your knee, uh, if your mom and dad pick you up and hug you while you're crying, they tell you it's going to be okay. This is the image of what this word merciful means. But God goes on and says the second adjective is that he's gracious. He means that God is is blessing these stiff-necked sinners who don't deserve it. He's giving them a blessing that they don't deserve. All they've been is stubbornly stiff-necked. Like when we receive gifts, receiving a gift or a blessing that we don't deserve. God is gracious. Notice God is also long-suffering. Or slow to anger is another way we could translate that. It's a vivid way of describing God's own patience. He is not quick-tempered. He does not easily, he's not easily angered. And imagine how a farmer may be trying to move a stiff-necked cow. After a few minutes, they might grow irritated with this thing, with this animal. I, I got other stuff to do. Will you just move and do what I want you to do? That is not how God responds to his stiff-necked and stubborn people. He is patient. He is not volatile, nor does he lose his temper. He is long-suffering. And then the last uh, adjectives kind of get grouped together here. He's abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. What kind of getting missed here is that all of these words are are related to each other. They all have the same uh, underlying base meaning. It basically means God's own covenant faithfulness. God is going to be faithful to the promise that he made to his people. It is God's long-term reliable loyalty to one member of the covenant relationship. God is not giving up on these people. And so despite Israel's infidelity at the golden calf, God is going to remain faithful 
to his people. He, as the one in whom none greater can be conceived, he is the perfectly compassionate one. But the other thing that God tells us about who he is, is he's also the perfectly forgiving one. Recently, there's been a lot of talk um, in the news uh, about uh, the federal government forgiving student loan debt. You might be familiar with this. Right? Students um, owe money to the federal government that they borrowed so that they could get their education. If that loan, if those, that money that owed is forgiven, they don't have to pay that money back anymore. They no longer have to pay that money back. They have been forgiven of their debt. And Jesus actually uses a similar financial analogy to explain forgiveness in Matthew 18. And so, having a financial debt forgiven, that's a wonderful blessing. Maybe depending on where you stand on having student loan debt forgiven, but that's another, another uh, we can talk about that afterwards. But there's a much greater blessing than having a financial debt forgiven. The blessing of having the debt and the guilt of our sin before a holy and righteous God forgiven. Friends, your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. And this is precisely what God says he will do for the stubbornly sinful people. Middle of verse 7, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is the perfectly forgiving one. And this is exactly what Moses had asked God to do in response to the rebellion of, of, and the sin of the golden calf. He prayed and pleaded that God would be forgiving. That God would not count this sin against them. And so God here answers Moses' request. I will forgive because of who I am. I am forgiving in my nature. I am the perfectly forgiving one. And notice what, what God says. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgressions. He forgives sin. Now, in Hebrew, these, there's a slight difference between these three words, and we can get into that. It probably wouldn't be a good use of our time tonight. But the point in God listing um, these different types of sins, if you will, is that God is able and willing to forgive any and all of our sin. There's no sin beyond the scope of this God in whom none greater can be conceived. He is willing to forgive any and all kinds of sin. Well, friends, some of us might say, yeah, God is forgiving. And maybe, we'll believe, maybe we believe that. Maybe we'll confess that. But we might tell ourselves, but he can't forgive me of that. He would never be able to forgive me of that sin. That was horrible, terrible. There's no way God could ever forgive me for that thing that I did. Friends, don't believe that lie for a second. 
This God is a God who can forgive sin, iniquity, and transgressions. There is no sin that is beyond the pale, beyond the scope of this God. He is the perfectly forgiving one. Well, this is probably where many of us want to stop. This is where we want to conclude, come to a conclusion. Maybe some of you just want me to conclude so we can go home. Um, But we want to meditate on God being compassionate, faithful, uh, forgiving, compassionate, merciful, gracious. Those are easy things to talk about. That's not where God's word stops. What does God go on to say to Moses? We have to keep reading. God is the perfectly just one. He says in the remainder of verse 7, I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is one of the clearest statements in all of God's word of his perfect eternal justice. He is the perfectly just one. He's not only perfectly compassionate, he's not only perfectly forgiving, but he's also perfectly just. And we we read this, what we just confessed in our catechism. We read about all these things, about how bad our sin is, and it's true. And question 11 rightly asks, but isn't God merciful? Yes, we just said, God just said he is, right? (laughs) He just said, I am merciful. How does the catechism answer it? God is indeed merciful. It doesn't deny that. But God is also just. And his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty must be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Punishment. I thought you just said, Pastor, that God is forgiving. I thought you just said that God is merciful. How can God be both forgiving and just? How can he also punish us? Isn't this a contradiction? It might seem like a contradiction, but if we understand properly what divine compassion, divine forgiveness, and divine justice is, I think we can really see that both of these things can be reconciled in who God is. So one of the things my wife and I like to do is we like to watch true crime shows right, where they, they, they have a, a murder and they have to go out and find out who did it, right, who done it. And they always catch, usually they catch the, the person. Um, and imagine they catch the person, they have DNA evidence that this person took another innocent human life. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, this person is guilty And the judge, after all of this, the judge just lets them go. Is that what forgiveness means? How would we respond? If, if you were a, a, one of the families of, of the person who was murdered, how would you respond to the judge? That's unjust. They would be outraged. Justice was not served. 
You see, friends, God's forgiveness of our sins can never surpass his justice. When God forgives sins, he never does so at the sake of his justice. R.C. Sproul says, God will never negotiate his own righteousness, his own justice, even out of his desire to save sinners. So how can God be both merciful and just? It's only through the work of his chosen mediator, the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Christ hung there on the cross of Calvary, he took the punishment. He took God's justice upon his shoulders. He bore the wrath that our sin deserved, of what the perfectly just one demands for our sin. And that's precisely what Paul says in Romans 3.26. That's at the very bottom of your sermon outline. So that God might be the just, the just one, and the one who just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who can answer both God's justice and also answer God's divine forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven, and Christ takes God's justice in the cross. Well, friends, as we conclude tonight, this is who God is. He is the one in whom none greater can be conceived. He is perfectly compassionate. He is perfectly forgiving. And he is also, at the same time, perfectly just. Is this the God that you believe in? Is this the God that you trust in? Or do we believe and put our trust in the gods of our own making? The gods, as we said in the introduction, that are more like us than they are like who God is. Just bigger and better versions of ourselves. Those gods that we make for ourselves, they can't, they could never satisfy God's justice. It is only this God who descended on Mount Sinai in glory and in majesty that he is the only one who can save us and redeem us from our sin. And we know that sin is stubborn and that we are stubborn sinners. Our necks are stiff and yet God, in spite of our stiff-neckedness, is eternally gracious, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, there's no greater news. There's no wonderful promise than understanding the eternal nature of God about who he is. Forgiving iniquities, but will by no means clear the guilty. But not only that, but he answers Moses' request. Take us as your inheritance. This people that have been stiff-necked and sinners, God is going to take them as his own. God's grace, his mercy, his long-suffering. 
He is the one in whom none greater can be conceived. And may we stand in awe of his majesty, of his eternal compassion, of his eternal desire to forgive our sins. But he will never do so at the sake of his justice. May all praise and honor and glory be to his name, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we come before you again tonight, we know that in ourselves we are stubbornly stiff-necked and sinful, and yet we thank you, Father, that you are abounding in goodness and truth and mercy. And you forgive our iniquity and our transgressions, and there is no sin that is beyond your grace. But we also, Lord, praise you that you are a God of justice. But it is also humbling, humbling to know that you had to satisfy that justice by sending your very own Son your very own son, to bear your just wrath against our sin in his body on the cross. There is no greater gift that we could ever receive. And so, Lord, we give you eternal thanks, praise, and honor as we bow before you as Moses did. And we worship you. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. May we worship you all the days of our lives as we stand in awe of who you are. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.